Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Jesus continues in his Sermon on the Mount, and he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's the section we're going to be living in tonight. And as you know, my desire is to teach you passages of Scripture or the Bible itself, but using the whole of Scripture, looking at the context, looking at the whole of Scripture to get an interpretation that hopefully is correct. Now, as Jesus teaches in this section, did anybody notice how Jesus talked about fasting? What was the word he used? When you fast. He doesn't say if you fast or if you might should fast. He says, when you fast. And we're going to deal with that. We're going to wrestle with that whole topic tonight. Because there are some that try to say, well, fasting was an Old Testament law, and we're under grace. And, and we're going to talk about a passage of Scripture that actually looks like it could, we could interpret it to say we don't have to fast anymore. And we'll talk about that tonight as well. But I want you to see from the beginning, when Jesus was teaching, he says, when you fast. Not only that, he said it twice. If you look there at the end of verse seven, or the beginning of verse 17, when you fast. So if Jesus is teaching fasting, keep in mind, it's something for us in the New Testament as well. But let's just do a little bit of background research about fasting. Fasting was a part of Old Testament life. I could take you, and we're going to look at a bunch of places in the Old Testament that talk about fasting throughout the night. But actually it was commanded. Fasting was commanded on the Day of Atonement. Go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. In Leviticus 16, verses 29 through 31, it says, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Now you say, wait a minute, Jim, where's fasting? It's there. Did anybody see it? I'm sorry? Ah, very good. Yours actually, your translation says fasting. But in the one I just read to you, did anybody see it? It's there twice. When you afflict yourselves, that word translated afflict yourselves here is also referring to fasting. Go to Psalm 35. So that's the issue. We don't like to afflict ourselves. But go to, go to Psalm 35. And look at verses 11 through 14. David is writing this psalm and he's dealing with some hard times. And he says in verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask of me things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with what? With fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in the morning. People in the Old Testament, as you'll see, when they would go through hard times, sometimes would practice fasting in order to get the attention of God or to 
hear from God. And we're going to talk to you about the difference between trying to get God's attention and hearing from God, because there's a big difference in your heart and to why you go about how you go, your, go about your fasting. <clears throat> but did you know that Jesus fasted? Does anybody know when Jesus fasted when he was on the earth? When he was in the wilderness, go to Matthew chapter 4. We have already seen that in our study of Matthew as we've been moving through here. In Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 1 and 2. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> it almost seems silly to put he was hungry at the end of that, but at the same time, don't get panicky. All of a sudden, Jim's going to say, oh, that means you have to fast 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, didn't Moses go without food 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain? And be careful of those who will take things in the scripture and turn them into a law that you have to follow. Let's let the whole of scripture develop what we're going to understand about fasting tonight. And I pray by the end of the night, you actually realize the beauty of it. Actually, it's going to sound, we hear the term afflict ourselves, and you're going to find by the end of the night, it's actually beautiful. It's going to be something pretty cool. You'll see. Hang on. We also see New Testament fasting all through the New Testament. Let me show you a couple of places where you see New Testament fasting. Go to Acts chapter 13. Look at verses 1 through 5. In Acts 13, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas is one of them, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here we see that the apostles there and also some of the elders in the church were fasting and praying. And then while they were fasting and praying, God spoke and said, Hey, I got a role for Barnabas and Saul. And they heard God clearly. They recognized it was God. They laid hands on them and ordained them. By the way, does any, we're going to chase a rabbit for a second. Does anybody know what the word ordain means? We've heard that term before, ordain, ordained. It sounds so, so fancy and so formal. But actually, it's a word that comes from two Hebrew words together. And it means to fill with power. To fill with power or to give authority. If someone's ordained, what you're doing is you're just giving them permission and authority. We've turned that into only the deacons can be ordained or only the pastor can be ordained. Oh, folks, you know that when God's called you to do something, he'll also empower you to do it. He'll, he'll fill you with his power. They laid hands on them and sent them off, but they fasted and prayed. Look over one chapter, chapter 14, look at verse 23. Acts chapter 14, look at verse 23. It says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here again, we see prayer and fasting is a regular practice in the church. By the way, when we hear fasting, what do we hear? We hear giving up what? Food. Did you know that fasting actually is more than just food? L let me show you an example. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 5.
Paul says to the church there, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to what? To prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here again, we see a temp of de depriving and afflicting yourself, if you will, in this area between a husband and wife. As you hopefully all understand, sexual relations are only to be in the marriage covenant. But at the same time, they should, you should... This is another thing that hopefully you understand. The wife should never use sexual relations as a weapon against the husband, nor the husband against the wife. They should never do that. And they should only not have relations if they both come to an agreement. And their reason is they're going to spend some time during that time in prayer. Seeking God about something. But then he says, but then once that time's over, come back together. Fasting incorporates a lot of things. As you're about to see throughout our study tonight, fasting is a saying no to the flesh so that we can say yes to the Spirit. And that's going to become a lot more clear as we go on. And we're going to deal with that in a little bit more. But again, fasting is learning to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. Some of you, God may challenge you to do a television fast for a period of time so that He can speak to you. Some of you, He may have you do a computer fast or a cell phone fast or a Twitter fast or an Instagram fast or whatever. There may be areas that He challenges you to put it aside. Oh, that'd be so hard not to do Facebook for a week. Oh, he may challenge you to afflict yourself. But again, as you're going to see in just a little bit, there's a danger as well if you don't understand the purpose of fasting and the heart of fasting, because it's very easy to fall into the wrong mindset about them. You see, fasting lost its meaning to most of the Jews as it became ritualistic and their hearts didn't match their outward actions of fasting. Let me show you a couple of places from the Old Testament that kind of clarifies this for us. Go to Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter 58, we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. In Isaiah 58, verse 3, the nation of Israel says to God, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then God speaks back and says, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. And to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Then God says, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? They're saying, wait a minute, God, we've been fasting and you're not, you're not responding appropriately. You're not hearing us. And God says, well, that's because you're going through the motions of fasting in your supposed uh, spirituality, but your hearts haven't been changed. Your actions aren't any different. You're actually, even on the day you're fasting, doing things to your pleasure, and part of your pleasure is treating each other poorly. Again, remember, we're learning in fasting to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. And that manifests itself more than just with food and stuff like that. 
Sometimes our flesh wants to treat people around us poorly. And we have to learn the purpose of fasting. And God says, um, the, the fast that I choose, what I'm looking for, is the right heart response. You remember back in Micah, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Micah chapter 6, the nation of Israel's been judged by God. He set up this courtroom scene, and he's the judge and the jury, and he's declared Israel guilty. And they then start to panic, and they say, well, well what, what should we come before you? What do you want us to sacrifice? What, what kind of action do you want us to respond with? And they start amping it up. And they ultimately get after saying, do you want us to do 10,000 rivers of oil? And then they say, do you want us to give our firstborn? Do you want us to sacrifice our firstborn? The fruit of our body for the sin of our soul. And if you remember Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, God says, he's already shown you, O man, what he wants. Do you remember? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All along, David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, and he said in Psalm 51, he said, uh, you don't desire sacrifice or I'd give it. The sacrifice of God is a broken heart, a broken spirit, a repentant heart. And so God's telling the nation of Israel, yeah, you're practicing your fasting, but it's just on the outward. And your fasting's supposed to allow the inward to change. The purpose of fasting is to allow an inward change. Oh, by the way, did you catch that? The purpose of fasting is to allow an inward change. Who is the purpose of fasting for? For us. See, a lot of people don't see it that way. They see fasting as well, that'll get God to move. A lot of people today even think, well, I'm going to have a time of fasting, so God has to respond. Oh, You've lost the purpose of fasting. It's not to make God act. The purpose of fasting is to have God allowed to be acting in your life. Go to, go to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 14. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, 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 that's Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Mm -hmm. All right, Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech to the men, uh, sorry, and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of the hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, during this time, the nation of Israel is in captivity. And when they were taken into captivity, it was the fifth month. And so every year on the fifth month, they would fast and they would mourn because of what happened. And they would call out to God. And on the fifth month, they'd have a fast and say, God, remember what happened on the fifth month? So they said, should we abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous? Were there cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor. 
Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention, and, he turned a, and, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts, as I called and they would not hear. So they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate. So that no one went to and fro in the pleasant land was made desolate. They're, they go to the priests and they go to the prophets and they say, hey, does God want us to keep fasting on the fifth month? I mean, we've been doing it for 70 years. Does he want us to keep doing it? It doesn't seem to be doing anything. We've been fasting and it appears God's not doing anything. Why have we fasted? What's the point? Does he want us to continue? In other words, he's saying, they're saying, look, we've been doing it. It ain't working. And God says to the prophet, let me tell you why it's not working. You still think that the fasting was so that you would get me to act. The fasting was to get a change in you, and we still haven't seen a change in you. And the reason you're even in this place is because I had called to you over and over, and you wouldn't listen. And so I decided, all right, when you call, I'm not going to listen. Now, as you're going to see later on tonight, when I take you through some fasting in the Old Testament that's good, you're going to see the difference in the heart attitude of those people who were fasting in the Old Testament in the right way. And you're going to see... It's a humility and a brokenness. And you're going to see later on, it's an attitude that says, I'm fasting because I need to change. Not because you need to do something. It's because of me. But we'll get there. You see, other people put their faith in their seemingly righteous actions as the Pharisees added, uh, sorry, Pharisees fasted twice a week. They added a twice-a-week fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Did you know that? Pharisees taught that you were to fast now twice a week. They were all the fasts in the Old Testament, but the Pharisees added some on Mondays and Thursdays. That's why, as you're going to see later on, people come to Jesus and say, hey, the Pharisees are fasting and John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. How come your disciples aren't fasting? We're going to deal with that passage in a little bit. So go with me to Luke chapter 18. Once again, look at the wrong attitude toward fasting. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verse 9. He, this is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, by the way, did anybody catch the purpose of fasting there in that last verse? What is it? It's humbling yourself. There's going to be times that you're going to sense the Spirit of God challenging you to humble yourself. Again, he has purposes that he's going to try to accomplish, and we're going to deal with some of them tonight, but at the same time, just again, get the purpose of fasting. The reason why fasting had always been was so God could change you. Not so that you could get God to act so that God could change you. That's going to be important, so I'm going to give you a quiz a little later on, see if you get it, all right? 
So the depth and the purpose of fasting, though, is going to be made even more clear from what Jesus said about fasting as recorded in Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. We're going to look at all those sections, and I'm going to show you, even though they're identical, I'm showing you they're identical for a reason. Go to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Matthew 9, verse 14, says, Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Go to Mark chapter 2. Let's look at Mark's account of this. Mark chapter 2 verses 18 through 22. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Go to Luke 5. Luke chapter 5, look at verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often. And offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Did anybody notice that in all three accounts, by the way, let me just give you a little biblical history here. There's only two accounts of Jesus's life that are recorded in all four Gospels. One, of course, is the crucifixion. Some of you may not realize this, but his birth's not even in all four Gospels. But his crucifixion's in all four. And the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four. But you rarely find three Gospels dueling with one. And here you have a situation where three Gospels all deal with it. So God had controlled. Remember, God's the one inspiring these guys to write. And what, remember, John says in his Gospel that if everything that Jesus did was written down, we wouldn't have enough books to hold it. So the Holy Spirit is determining what we get and what we don't get, what's recorded, what's not recorded, what Matthew writes and Mark and Luke writes, but what they don't. And this is recorded in three of the Gospels. 
And did anybody notice that in each one, the new wine and the old wineskins is told, and the new patch and the old cloth is told? There's something here that's going to make fasting explode. But before we get there, go ahead. I was just going to make a comment about Sure. Um, what I've learned recently uh, in the Word about fasting and what's coming to my mind as you're speaking and this is being repeated is that by humbling ourselves, denying the flesh, He can give us new manna. You got it. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. What she just said is dead on right, and we're go- that's exactly where we're going to end up. But I have to deal with the fact that this passage has gave me a bellyache for years. Let me tell you why. Jesus said, um, I'm here. Why would they fast while I'm here? There's a time when I'm going to go away, and then they'll fast. But isn't Jesus here? I mean, he did go away, and he sent the Spirit, which is himself, to be in me. And so for years I've wrestled with, well, why do I have to fast then? Because if I don't have to fast when he's here, he's here. He lives within me. He's with me all the time. I should be having the party. But, and I'll get right back to you. But Jesus said, when you fast, we see that New Testament fasting was after the, after the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, there was fasting. Why do we still fast then if he's with us? But he said that we're to fast while he's away. It's definitely a command, but let's go beyond. A little deeper of why. Go ahead. I was going to say, because he sat down. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Okay. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Definitely. Yes, the spirits did this, but it is Jesus. Jesus himself said in John chapter 20, in that day you'll realize that I'm in you and you in me and I'm in the Father. Go ahead. Oh, that's actually very good. We were fasting when we feel away from him. That's definitely, we could, we, could, we could correlate that a little bit. But maybe also we could listen better. Ooh, we're definitely going to go there. We're definitely going to go there about listening better. First off, as much as he is here, like you just touched on, he's not. He was feeding them daily with the word. <laughs> yes. He was feeding them daily with the word, and he was there, but then... As much as he's here, why are we waiting for his return? Physical presence. Yes, physical presence. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're about to look at three passages of Scripture that go with right what you and I were talking about, Teresa. We're going to be dealing with passages that we were talking about tonight, right before we started Bible study. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for him to come, aren't we? Oh, he's here in the sense that he lives within us. But we're still waiting for him to come. Go to Titus. You're in 1 Thessalonians. Turn over a couple of books to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 13. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. I love that. It's a process, folks. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, we are in the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're being trained to say no to ungodliness and our passions and say yes to the Lord on a daily basis while we wait for him to come back. Go back one book to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verses 6 through 8. Paul at this point realizes he's at the end of his life. And he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Some translations say longed for his appearing. So, are we to fast? Yes, we are to fast. But why? Why are we to fast then? Yes, it's because he's away and he's still yet to come, but he is here with us. And it was all touched on by you. And here's the answer. How many of you have been left here to wait for him and have been redeemed? You've been forgiven. The spirit of God's within you. You're sealed for the day of redemption. But you've been left in an old body that's still under the curse of sin and still wanting to walk away from God on a daily basis. Me too. We've got some old wineskins, don't we? And you can't receive the things of the Spirit in the flesh. I could take the rest of tonight preaching from the Scriptures on the fact that most of what happens in our churches today, especially in America, is churches trying to do the things of the Spirit, things of God, in our own strength, in our own flesh. And it is a daily, daily struggle. The church that I used to pastor, that I've gone back to help now, 14 years after I left. When I went there in 2000, 20, almost 20 years ago, the mess that was there was pretty severe. And there were so many things that had to be realigned with the Scripture and realigned with the Scripture and realigned with the Scripture. And we had to lay it flat and start over and God did an awesome work, but then God moved me. And he sent me to travel around and speak to churches around the country and get them back to the word and what it means to be led of the spirit. And then I come back and guess what? All that stuff that I had to clean up 19 years ago, it's back. I mean, it's almost comical. The exact same problems that were there before, that's because they stopped trying to do it in the spirit and they try to do it in the flesh. But don't look at them and say, well, those rascals. No, no, no. You got the same problem. Every day, even though inwardly we were being renewed by our spirit, every day, though, in order to be renewed and have that renewing to take place, we have to lay our flesh on the altar. We're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's why practicing fasting isn't this thing you do every now and then when you need to call a time of fasting to get God to move. It should be something you practice on a regular basis throughout your life when you sense that the Spirit of God's calling you to a deeper walk 
when he's calling you through an episode in your life that you need to hear more clearly, those are the times the Spirit of God is going to be saying to you, I want you to practice fasting. He'll tell you, I'll get right to you, he'll tell you when, he'll tell you how long, he'll tell you what. That's not for man to determine. That's not for man to decide, but it's the Spirit of God. And he will, during that time, if you understand the purpose of it, it's not like, okay, God, I'm fasting, you better move. No, 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 you're wanting me to fast so that I will change, so that I'll be able to better receive. Did you ever notice that Jesus used two illustrations in his response to them? One was the new wine and the old wineskins, and hopefully you understand that. Back then, uh, they didn't have coolers like we do, and so the liquid would be held in animal skins. And as you know, wine would ferment, and the, it expands whatever container it's in. An old wineskin has already reached its full expanding, and it's, it's, it's stretched out. It's become hard and dry. You put new wine in it, it's just going to burst it because it can't handle it. But also, he used the illustration of a fresh piece of cloth put into an old piece of cloth and patched. Those of you who do anything, know anything, you wash that a few times, what that new piece of cloth going to do? It's going to shrink. It's going to tear away. Folks, um, we've been trying to fix our lives with patches for too long. Maybe I just try this for a little while. Maybe I'll try this for a little while to fix this. And we know there's areas of our lives that God wants to work on. We know that there's things he's talking to us about. And we try to patch it up with a habit or a practice or a program. You can't fix what God wants to do in the spirit with a patch. You need new wineskins to receive the new wine. And for my spirit to be, or my flesh my body to be that new wineskin to be able to receive the new wine in the work of the Spirit, I have to have him do a work in me. Put away the old to put on the new. You were going to say something. I was just going to say that, you know, over the years, um, it gets easier. And, and, of course, everybody is at different seasons in their life. When you have young children, it might be harder. And then I had to learn, like, I don't go to the kitchen. I don't Right. And again, like I say, we have to be real careful that we start telling people how to do it. The Spirit of God will get us. I know what you're saying. Right. All of this stuff of the Lord, as we learn to let the Spirit do the work, it does. Definitely does. Now, let's keep... But that's what the whole point is of Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's what I was quote, quoting, which is your spiritual worship. And, your, you know, that's what the Bible, Bobby, the Bible talks about. Let's keep moving here because we've got a lot to get done in the time we have left here. There's more still. As God moves us from the old covenant to the new, from law to grace, from old wine to new wine, we can't receive the new wine in the old manner nor in old containers. Fasting helps us empty ourselves of the old way of our fleshly efforts and prepares us to receive his, did you catch this? Daily grace. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Remember, and it wasn't teaching God, give us our food, because he teaches on that later on. He was talking about Jesus and our daily need for him to be in control. And it prepares us for that. 
In other words, when we fast, we're saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. Fasting is not some outward act that we do to patch up our lives. The fasting of the Pharisees had nothing to do with the gospel. It was merely ritualistic and had no power or value. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, look at verses 16 through 23. In Colossians 2, verse 16, listen to what Paul says. And listen closely to a passage we've used a lot, but it's going to become even more clear and more deep in a second here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's true harsh treatment of the body. Worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. Listen, beware of anybody that starts telling you, you start doing these things and you're going to grow in your walk with the Lord. I hope you don't hear that from me tonight as I teach on fasting. The purpose of fasting is so that we would get closer to Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul says, He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry so that we'll no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and every cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, but we will all grow up into him who is the head. That's Christ. And so the purpose of everything is so that we will go closer to Jesus. This church that I'm helping right now is transitional pastor. I have been burning it into their brains over and over as I've begun, we're only going to focus on two things while I'm here. As God uses me to appoint elders and get things ready to get you ready for the next pastor, we're going to focus on two things. And if you focus on anything else, we're going to call you on it. We're going to focus on two things, getting to know Jesus more and loving each other. And that's it. Well, don't you think we should focus on evangelism? Jesus said, if you lift him up, he'll draw him into himself. We're going to focus on Jesus and we're going to love each other. Well, I think that they should be working harder. We need more young people or we need more. No, 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 bring it back, bring it back. We're focusing on two things, getting to know Jesus more and loving each other. And folks, when that is the church's focus, everything else falls into place. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and I'll take care of everything else. The church has been taught to focus on the wrong stuff. So this past Sunday, I took what the offering was last week and what the attendance was last week and what it was in Sunday school out of the bulletin. And I also took it out of their weekly email that is sent out to the whole church and I started church with this. I said, some of you are sitting there looking at your bulletin going, where are the numbers from last week? And I said, they're gone, and I took them away, and they're not coming back, and here's why. We've been taught to look at the wrong things, and we think that's church. Paul never said, what was your attendance when he wrote to a church? He never said, how many of you reached for Christ when he wrote to a church? But he said, I've heard of your love for the Lord Jesus and your love for each other. My prayer now is twofold, that you'll grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll love each other more. And we are going to focus on those two things, and you watch what God does in this place. Fasting's purpose is not to put your faith in some practice that you think is going to all of a sudden make you more spiritual. Fasting's purpose is so that you'll become closer to Jesus. And if you put your faith in your fasting, did you hear me? If you put your faith in your fasting, your faith has been pulled away from Jesus 
and into your actions. And you become like those Pharisees. Keep reading. Verse 20. Colossians 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you think practicing fasting is going to make you closer to God, you totally missed it. Saying no and treating your body poorly is not going to have any value in changing your heart. And like it says, Stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sure. And here's, I, I have no problem with leadership asking the church to fast as a whole, as long as the leadership doesn't demand that everyone fast. Do you understand the difference? Let the Holy Spirit, if the, if the leadership feels that God's calling them to a fast, I got no problem. But then you don't make sure that they've all fasted. Let the individual walk according to the Lord. I think there's nothing wrong with it as long as the spirit gets to determine who amongst the group. Yes, ma'am. I was going to say that it was because churches called a fast that it gave me a goal that I wouldn't have normally given myself. Yep. No, there's definitely value in it. I'm not against, like I say, if the leadership prayerfully believes that they have to call a church to a fast, we see that kind of stuff in the scripture. All right. Now. So if you're fasting because you think you'll be more righteous if you do, your faith's in your fasting. But if you fast every so often to empty yourself or put off the old self so that you can hear God clearly, it will help you focus your mind and you'll be set on, your mind will be set on things above. I don't have time to go there because of the time we have left and what we have left to cover. But if you finished where we left off in verse 23, how these have an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When Paul wrote this, he didn't stop and put a big number three. Those were added. You all understand that, right? So Paul continued writing, and what did he write in the very next verse? If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you'll also appear with him glory. And we don't have time, but if you were to go on, he then talks about putting to death what's of our earthly nature, of our flesh, and saying yes to the spirit. Fasting helps us do that. Fasting helps us do that. But here's what I want to do. I want to take you back the time we have left tonight, and I want to read to you what the scripture says about godly men and women who fasted in the Old Testament and did it the right way. Listen closely to the difference between their prayers and the prayers of the nation of Israel that said, we fasted and it didn't do any good. Listen to the difference. Tell me what the difference is. I told you I was going to give you a quiz here. Go to Nehemiah chapter 1. You do know that Nehemiah was one of the shortest people in the Bible, right? All right. There was another guy that was even shorter than him. His name was Bildad the Shuhite. Some of you are still with me. And there's one more. There's one more. Zacchaeus was, and he was taller than both of those guys. One guy was only knee high, and then the other one was shoe height. And there was a, one even shorter than both of them as the guard who slept on his watch. 
But we digress. Go to, go to Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that I command that you command your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by... uh, by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight for, to fear your name to, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I hadn't been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, and the good hand of of my God was upon me. When Nehemiah stood before the king, and the king realized he was sad, the Bible says, the king said, what do you, what do you want? And he said, the Bible says he prayed to the Lord. But what had he, been, had he been doing prior to that moment? He had been fasting. Oh, and while he was fasting, was he was like, God, you owe us. No, his heart was humble and broken. And he said, all this had happened was exactly like you said, and you're right. We as the nation have sinned. I have sinned, my fathers have sinned, and I'm broken before you. And we're just bringing this prayer to you. And then, as he'd been fasting and praying, there came a day 
when God's power was released in his life. Do you remember when Jesus cast the demon out of that boy and the disciples said, well, how come we couldn't cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind only comes out by fasting and prayer. And remember, Jesus didn't pray nor fast at that time. He just told the demon to come out. Why? Because he lived a life of saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. He lived in a close communion with the Father in a brokenness. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And God's power is released in the lives of people who practice walking with him and letting him be God. Oh, but there's more. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 19. Daniel says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Azaharis, by descent to Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Here it is again. With fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, and who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done." And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is to this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer 
prayer of your servant and who is pleased for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, O Lord. Hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. By the way, does anybody hear Daniel saying, God, I'm fasting? No. His whole prayer is, you're the Holy One. You're right in all that you did. You did just what you said you would do. And we were the ones who sinned. We've done it over and over and over. And we're not asking. I'm not praying this because of our righteousness, but because of who you are. By the way, um, does anybody know what happens next in this story when he finishes this prayer? Actually, it was while he was praying. Look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen at the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And then he came and gave him that awesome prophecy of the 77s are decreed for your city and your people. And 69 of them have been fulfilled and we're waiting on that last seven to happen. But listen, God's power is released when we practice in many ways saying no to the flesh, on a daily basis and say yes to the Spirit. You need to become a person who, by the Spirit of God, when he leads, practices saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. But it's not so that God will move, it's so that you will change. Oh, and when we change, what does he do? He moves. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Remember, I've shared with you before, with this, I can't say it, shared this with you before. God's grace is always flowing toward us. He's forever wanting to bless. He's forever wanting to do awesome things in our lives. But what keeps him from doing it is our disobedience and our pride. Fasting is a way to help that flesh stay under control as you yield to the spirit. Oh, but men weren't the only ones that did it. Look at Luke chapter 2. Let me show you a lady who did. Look at verses 36 through 38. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You know, this is when Jesus is brought to the temple to be dedicated. Simeon had been told by the Spirit. Simeon was one of those guys that walked in prayer and fasting. And he had been told by the Spirit that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Christ. And the Spirit of God had him show up at the temple that day. Anna lived there. She hung out there all the time. And she prayed and fasted every day. Did she never eat? No, no. Fasting doesn't mean you don't eat. There are times of fasting where you don't eat and you might go without a meal or you might even go without a meal for a day or you might even go out of the meal for longer. It depends on what God's calling you to. But it was a life of practicing saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. And because of that, this lady had a close walk with the Lord and she got to see what everybody was looking for and waiting for. Oh, by the way, that they all missed. Why did they miss it? Well, they're too busy living for this life and the pleasures of the flesh. Let me say something to you I've said before. I'm going to keep saying it over and over. 
God has no favorites. But he has intimates. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Folks, you want to see God's power released in your life? Fully trust him. Fully trust him. We're going to close tonight by taking you back to Matthew chapter 6. By the way, has anybody noticed that fasting is intricately tied to prayer? It's every time. Look at Matthew chapter 6, though. Look at verse 18. He, he's finishing a statement here, and that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. Listen to the end of verse 18. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't miss that. If your desire is to truly say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit, if your heart's desire is, oh God, I'm doing something, you better act, you've totally missed that. But if your heart's desire is to say, Lord, you're righteous, I'm not. Lord, I want your power. I want the fresh wine. I want you to, you're, you're taking me through something right now and you're challenging me to a deeper walk with you. Then I'll humble myself. I'll humble myself. It's not pleasant. All discipline is not pleasant at the time, but later it produces righteousness through those who have been trained by it. He says, if you truly fast, you will hear. You will hear. Well, Jim, I tried it. I didn't hear anything. How long did you wait? Long as I thought I should. Ah, very good. You waited as long as you thought you should. If you really believe he'll respond, you wait until he does. Someone says, well, what are you waiting for? Because he said he'll respond. And he will. When? I don't know. But he will. I pray we all become people that the power of God is able to even do more than we could imagine, ask, or think. I love you. No Bible study next week because I'm preaching revival in Grant. See you in two weeks.